Magic Beans, episode four, Sam Park and John Ramey. I remember, Sam, when I was booking the Jim Bohannon show very early on, I um, there was a something happened with the Fed. This must have been back in 2012. Okay. And I booked an expert on what I thought was like the slam dunk lead story of the night, right? And I tuned in to listen to how Jim was going to handle it. And he, you know, this is the, the privilege he had of being on the air for so long and such a great rapport with his audience. And, you know, he says, and today the Fed has made an announcement. And he goes, before you go to sleep, let's talk, you know. And so, like, he was like, listen, I know this is boring. And I thought, oh, wow, okay. I think people don't understand what the Fed is to begin well, with. Well, now, to be fair, the the importance of the Fed, whatever the Fed's doing right now is just objectively larger than whatever it was doing 10 years ago. Well, it, 10 years ago, it may have been, are they going to end quantitative easing? Probably. Right. right? I'm, that's probably and, what and, it was. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that's what the topic was. What was quantitative easing, Sam? It quantitative was easing 2000- was yeah, the sorry. Uh, large scale purchase of treasuries and other uh, uh, sort of federal debt instruments by the Federal Reserve itself uh, in order to keep that market uh, sort of afloat uh, during it. And it was instituted in the aftermath of the financial crisis a few years before that. And it was a successful policy, but it what couldn't what wasn't something that could have been sustained forever. So and the we're Fed, now dealing with that. Correct. There was additional quantitative easing taken uh, part by the Fed after the COVID epidemic hit. Uh, And so that is also uh, about to be unwound. The Fed has like one tool and it's a throttle, right? It's either and quantitative easing is just kind of like when they decide to make it harder to get money, right? Or easier to get money. Easier to get money. That's right. right. Quantitative Uh, easing makes it easier to get money. Correct. and it's like the the Fed is like it's a throttle. They either put it on or they take it off somewhat, right? Well, yeah. I mean, you could say they also have a break, and that's, uh, and that's the the points. Yes, I mean, so it's not you know those are two tools, two tools, but the same direction. Sure, I mean, uh, uh, they don't really have a reverse gear, but you don't no. kind of want them to. Yeah, I mean, they have you know sort of different. Uh, gradations of these things. For, uh, for instance, they decided uh, to raise interest point interest rates yesterday by 50 basis points. That is half a percentage point, as opposed to 75 basis points, which they've done for several rate increases in a row leading up to yesterday. And that rate increase is not what my credit card statement has or not what my mortgage statement has. That is the interest that banks pay to the Fed, to the Fed to yes. get money from the fed from the fed yes and that so the which is not rate, all the money banks get that's right but that the they and the banks charge higher interest rates than the they than the fed charges them obviously that's how because they because they money. have to afford the free coffee that i drink correct I in, exactly and boy that's some delicious coffee that you get at the bank i think it's important to understand <clears throat> kind of what the the central bank does right it just sets its own prices for what they're going to sell money to banks for. 
you know, they regulate the supply of money. Uh, now, that's kind of a misnomer also, though. For instance, when you go to the bank and you ask, let's say you go to the bank and you want to borrow $20,000, just you know, as a, sure. an, an example, right? The banker doesn't go down to the vault and open up the yeah, vault right. and go, let's see, one, two, three. He looks at your credit reports and, you know, uh, if he's a racist, he makes note that you're white. And, and, right. and then he, he decides that you can pay whatever amount of interest. He determines to... I am low enough risk. Exactly. And or at least that's what bankers are supposed to do. And so that money is basically created to lend to you. Right. It's just that uh, if interest rates are higher, that banker will be less likely to take a risk on somebody who might be less credit worthy. So the, the Federal Reserve doesn't actually create money, although they could. Uh, but in most cases, the bank is the one creating the money. We have this inflation problem. Right. And the Fed wants to tamp down the inflation problem. And the way I understand it is um, the Fed doesn't want to come out and say it, but what the real objective is by making money more expensive for banks, the Fed is thereby for everybody and therefore for everybody. The Fed is essentially saying we want to slow the economy down to the most minute growth possible and risk a recession just to get inflation under control. Correct. I mean, that's kind of messed up if you get laid off. Yes, it is. And this is why a and number certain of people have to bear the burden of this more than others, as you know. That's right. And this is why certain uh, progressive Democrats have been excoriating the Fed for the rate increases that they've instituted thus far. And uh, because it, it's true that this is has much more negative effects on the poorer elements of our society. However, uh, so does inflation. Uh, and so, you know, uh, those people are going to suffer pretty much no matter what. And I think that, uh, for instance, in his press conference yesterday, Chairman Powell said the negative effects will be much worse the longer they're allowed to go on. And that is pretty much what any central banker would say, I think. Uh, and this has been sort of the, the way the Fed thinks about inflation for almost half a cent or for, for since the 80s or the late 70s, we might say. Which was our last inflation crisis. Yes. And by the way, much worse than what we're looking at today. The, the, in his press conference yesterday, Chairman Powell said that uh, the Board of Governors of the Fed believes that interest rates will peak uh, that is, the, the base rate will peak just above 5% sometime next year. And it's already four and a half or something like that. And that, and back in the late 70s, early 80s, it was way higher than that, right? In, in 1982, it was 20%. Right, which is more than five. Co- correct. And, and, and inflation was much worse then also. And so, you know, and that's terrific, right? We don't want inflation to be uh, anywhere near as bad as it was. Then. I know you're too young to remember, but it was a I've real... Read about it. 
crisis. And uh, and we should be happy that it, it doesn't seem as though it's going to get anywhere near that. In fact, it seems as though inflationary pressure, pressures are already moderating to the, or at least beginning to moderate today. As Powell said yesterday, it's probably too early to say that they're just going to drop off all by themselves, but they do seem to be heading in the right direction. Uh, what's the unemployment rate, right? Like, have we started to see real negative fallout on the job market? Not yeah. a lot. There's There's been some indication that, that hiring is slowing down, but uh, the but uh, the unemployment... I mean, anecdotally, I'm aware of layoffs, but that's just because it's the end of the year. Sure. And, and it doesn't seem as though uh, uh, unemployment is spiking. Uh, it might be rising slowly. And, and as Ronald Reagan said, a depression is when your neighbor loses or a recession is when your neighbor loses his job. A, a depression, depression is when, when you, you lose yours. Lose yours you know? Yes. Uh, yesterday, the chairman also said that uh, he expected or the Fed expects that in, uh, unemployment will peak next year also at about 4.7 percent, which is uh, by recent historical standards, high, right? It's higher than we would like it to be, but it's nothing compared to, you know, some of the more, even I believe it was something like 8% in the wake of the the financial crisis. Uh, And so uh, it looks like we might get by, get through this episode relatively easily. Now, the Fed could be wrong. Uh, And uh, that's, and just to, to back up a little bit, the Fed doesn't want to necessarily cause a recession, although that's certainly a risk it's taking. As I said before, the Fed's job is to regulate the money supply in the United States. And the textbook definition of inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. That is an excess of demand over supply. Now, money is a, a more specific way of saying demand, and goods is a more specific way of saying supply. We might say goods and services. And so it's, it is just textbook ec- economics. If there's too, too much money and too little supply, the, the only thing the Fed can do, actually, is to provide less money. And, you know, they, can, they have no real control over the supply side, and they shouldn't even want or attempt to do so. So they're only that, you know, when you say they only have one tool, that that's right. They only have they have what's called a dual mandate, which is price stability and maximum employment. Now, there's often a tension between those two mandates, as there is today. And inflation is one of the most reliable providers of that tension. Right. Because. In order to maintain price stability, the Fed might have to take a little bit of hit on a little bit of a hit on employment. And they just hope it's not going to be too big. I have to I just look at all of it with just a slightly cynical view, because, of course, when, you know. Stock of the day X, you know, spikes or cryptocurrency has an explosive gain in value. Because it's the asset holding class, we don't have to worry about that kind of inflation. But when it's cash, well, then then it's a crisis. And I understand just for the functioning of an economy. 
it's different. But of course, yeah. And that's there, there's again, nothing wrong it's with just, that. It's the, listen, you and I both know that we have we have not, or I don't want to speak for you. I have not always been as economically comfortable as I am today, right? And so I just have real world experience with like people who are you know working at the low end of the wage scale and like need the job to make rent. And we talk about percentages and trends and spikes, and that's all well and good. But like, you know, it's collateral damage. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and but if you look at the broader view, this is all basically an, an outgrowth of the pandemic. And uh, I think uh, that globally, by the way, not just because you got 800 bucks in the mail. Correct. I mean, uh, you know, inflation Bank of England infa- raised their rates today. I think. Yeah, the inflation is much worse in Europe, even right. Another wealthy part of the world than it is here. Uh, and uh, to say nothing of places like Turkey or, you know, uh, parts of Latin America, where uh, our inflation rates are comparatively benign. Now, they're no picnic, but in the broad scheme of things, we should be able to get out of it relatively easily compared to some other places. And there's probably a way by which Powell and the Fed thread this needle, barring some shock to the supply chain. They might even get out of it without a recession on paper. I heard somebody, maybe it was, um, might've been on NPR yesterday. Somebody said, it's technically not a recession. It's a vibes session. Yeah. All right. Whatever. I mean, the, (laughs) The, the fact is that, for instance, yes, somebody in the press conference yesterday asked Powell after he said that because unemployment right now is about three and a half percent or so. And Powell said he expected it to go up to about four point six percent next year, sometime next year at its peak. And the reporter asked him, well, that large a spike uh, or an increase anyway in unemployment, that would something we would normally associate with a recession. Uh, Why uh, aren't you making that assessment right now? And, you know, Powell came back and said, well, that's true, but uh, any sort of hemmed and hawed and blah, 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 right? I would say, and I understand why Powell wouldn't come out and say this, uh, that, well, even if it is a recession, uh, if unemployment peaks at four, you know, four point six percent in a recession, that's a mild recession. Right. You'll take uh, it. And so, you know, uh, you know, it's almost like he, he might have felt like saying to the reporter, you just grow a pair, buddy. I mean, uh, you know, you're not going to be hurting. I mean, and, and you, you know, don't know that. Yeah, exactly. So uh, it's uh, a knee jerk defense of the reporter. Excuse we me. We don't really we don't really know how this is going to play out. So much of what's happened in the wake of the pandemic is just so large in scale and so uncharacteristic in history that, you know, making predictions about it is, I think, to some extent, foolhardy. Uh, And so we shouldn't be, unfortunately, that's the job of the Fed, right? So, I mean, they have to make these predictions and they have to be very, very careful how they do so. And, you know, many people believe that they were too slow to act on inflation. And I think that's probably right. However, I would also say that, and hopefully this won't take me too long to get out, but uh, 
It's often said of economists, not least by economists, that they suffer from physics envy, right? That they wish that their discipline were regarded as being as rigorous and complicated and important as physics is. And I think the the economists who sort of gently tease their fellow economists about physics envy are the smarter ones because it means they have a better understanding of the limits of their own discipline, right? So when we talk about uh, supply and demand or, you know, that's too much money chasing too few goods, right? The physics envy economists want to think of these things or want people to think of these things as if it's gravity, Right. Or the the electromagnetic force or something like this. Right. Uh, And it's just not. No, it's something that humans invented. Exactly. Right. Demand is people buying stuff. Right. Supply is people making stuff and or providing services. It's not the building blocks of the universe. Exactly. The physicists are describing things that would be true even if human beings did not exist. And economists simply aren't doing that. Uh, and if they somehow want to, to fool themselves into thinking they are, well, shame on them. For instance, if you if uh, an economist is on television, which they are with alarming frequency, uh, they might say something like, well, I expect a recession to come next year. Right. Uh, they, and maybe they'll be wrong. Maybe they'll be right. But they, they generally don't mind making these sorts of predictions. And if you're watching television and you see that economist say that, you might think, oh, gosh, you know, I was thinking about buying a new car, but if I get laid off, I won't be able to afford the payment. So I guess I shouldn't buy a new car. Or if you're more well to do, you might think, you know what, I can afford to buy a new car right now, but next year I might not be able to afford one. So I should buy a car now. So depending on who you are, you might make the exact opposite decision based on what the economist says. And so economists then have to go and aggregate all these different decisions that people make. But a neutrino isn't going to hear a physicist on television and alter its behavior based on what the physicist says. Uh, And so, I mean, just this whole physics envy idea is just it's very silly. And uh, and I think that I don't I'm sure that I don't know exactly how many economists subscribe to it and how many don't. But it is something that's common enough that people talk about it where they think it's a hard science, but it's not. It's a behavioral science. It's very uh, robust and and uh, uh, involved. There's quite a lot of very complicated math involved, Uh, but it's just not the same. It's still the social science. Yes. That's great. And there's nothing wrong with that. In Ukraine today, uh, every media outlet pretty much in the world that I've paid attention to over the past couple of days has reported that the United States has agreed to provide Ukraine with the Patriot missile air defense system. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's actual 
been con- confirmation from the Pentagon about this. But Patriot missile systems, we all, those of us of a certain vintage, remember, are an anti-missile missile that we saw in use during the first war in Iraq, right? That's correct. I believe that was their debut. Yeah. Uh, and they've been a staple of of uh, American air defense capability ever since. I, grad, I gather they've been upgraded many times since then. Uh, and the Ukrainians have been asking for them basically since the war started. But it's only now that the United States apparently has agreed to provide them to Ukraine. And not a moment too soon, because the the infrastructure, uh, the damage to their infrastructure that the Russians are inflicting now is taking place almost entirely from the air. From missiles. From missiles and planes, even. Uh, Drones, to some extent, you know, they're throwing a lot at infrastructure right now. That is, the Russians are. And uh, one thing I find interesting about this is that last week, there were a couple of uh, explosions uh, on Russian air bases hundreds of miles from Ukraine. And the Ukrainians didn't exactly take credit for them, but they didn't rush to deny it either. Uh, and, and I think everybody just assumes it was them. And the United States, Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, said that the United States neither enabled nor encouraged the Ukrainians to take out to take to undertake such attacks. Uh, even less widely reported, which I also find interesting, and it might be entirely unrelated, but also last week, or perhaps as back as far back as two weeks ago now, there have been two different fires set or that occurred anyway at shopping malls in Moscow. And the Russian authorities, as far as I know, have attributed the first one of them to arson. Uh, and so who's to say it might have been Ukrainians. It might have been some other, you know, some ru- very zealous Russian dissident or it might have just been some crazy guy. We have no idea. Uh, but to return to the airbase attacks, I think we can probably imagine that this is something that the United States, for example, might prefer the Ukrainians not to do, right, uh, is to move the theater of war into Russia itself. Uh, and so... Well, that's just a different game with different stakes. Correct. And uh, and so if you're the Ukraine, you know, now, of, of course, we have to imagine that there are many, many discussions happening behind the scenes that we have no idea. About. Look, if you're Ukraine and you just want to win the war, it makes all the sense in the world. Absolutely. But if you're and, everybody else who's trying to help Ukraine and not start the Third World War, it's a much more difficult play. Exactly right. So if you're uh, the United States and you say, look, can you ease up on this kind of thing? I think the Ukrainians could very well have come back to them and said, OK, well, what are we supposed to do? Right. These people are raining death upon us from the sky every day. Right. We've got millions of people shivering in the dark every night. And some of them are dying. Make no mistake. 
as a result of that. And we're not supposed to try and take out the planes that are helping the Russians do this. If that's how you feel, give us the Patriots so we can, you know, defend our own skies here in our own country. And then maybe we wouldn't have to leave our country to try and damage Russian air power if we did it. Right. Uh, Right. So I don't you know. Again, I have no idea that any discussion like that took place, but I don't think it's an implausible scenario to imagine that it might have. Let's just say that. Um, uh, as uh, in addition, today, uh, the European Commission signed off on the plan of the European Parliament to provide an additional, I think it was 18 billion euro in aid to Ukraine. So that's, uh, you know, the money is flowing from all directions so far. There has not been thus far a flagging in uh, enthusiasm to, to provide aid. The, you know, I think the Ukrainians would prefer it was a little faster, but the, the European Parliament and you know their European Union government organizations generally never do anything quickly. And so you know, that's just something that the Ukrainians will have to put up with. Uh, they've, in many ways, I think we could say that in this particular case, they've moved remarkably quickly to adapt to the changing geostrategic environment on their own continent, which is, let's face it, an enormous shift. Nobody has any practice with... Exactly. Nobody in power has any practice with how to deal with a land war in Europe. All right, you told me to ask you, and I'm going to because it's related to the subject, what are you keeping your eye on? I'm going to go first. Okay. Because it's related to this. In the Washington Post today... There's an article about Ukraine and aid. And after the damage to Ukrainian infrastructure, Ukrainian officials are saying that Ukraine is going to need $2 billion a month in aid. And I am going to keep my eye on how that plays with the new Congress and the GOP House in particular, because don't all funding bills have to... That's correct. Originate in and pass the House. Keep in mind, though, that uh, if you're the Ukrainian government, your job is to ask for everything. Sure, ask high and take. Yeah, and so you know, of course, they're saying that. But the fact is, some zealous Congressperson's going to say, "Look, that's insane. We can't be doing." I mean, you know, I'm not saying the Ukrainians shouldn't be asking for that, but well, I think somebody's going to react to that. In the that's one reason we should be glad that that the Europeans ponied up a bunch of cash today. But yeah, you're right. That is something to keep an eye on. But Ukraine is going to be something to keep an eye on, I think, for for the foreseeable future. For the next decade. Um, What are you keeping your eye on? Uh, I'm mainly going to be looking at the European Parliament bribery scandal, which has received, as far as I can tell, no national coverage in the United States whatsoever. You are the only reporter who's telling me about it. And uh, it's a big story in Europe, uh, but it involves, for instance, uh, Qatar uh, is is the briber in question, uh, allegedly. I'm shocked. And today I just found out that they believe Morocco is also implicated. And so uh, this is a story that's still unfolding. uh, And some of the details are still rather sketchy. So I'm confident that it'll there, there will be continual developments 
that we could talk about uh, next week and probably in, in some weeks to come. But it is uh, something, I think partly one of the reasons it's getting so little coverage here, just like, oh, so a lawmaker accepted large bags of cash? <laughs> yeah. You know, people just think, you know, What's whatever, the story? this happens all the time, right? Uh, but, uh, and shame on us if that's our reaction. No, I just think we have European fatigue with the World Cup. I think we can only deal with so much global and European stuff at once. Again, shame on us, right? I mean, uh, especially since the host of the World Cup is apparently the one providing the bribes. Again, shocking. Yeah, and so that that is something that I'll be keeping an eye on. And uh, again, I'm confident that that more there will be more to come. Uh, and everybody in Europe seems to believe that's the case, also.